All right, folks, you are listening to the Yishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Jerusalem to the world, and you're a part of it wherever you are right now. I'm back at home in the land of Israel after a long tour in the United States, and I'm in our offices in Hebron, as I'm the international spokesman of the Jewish community of Hebron. Uh, and uh, this morning I was getting ready to, last night I went to sleep early after kind of uh, having some jet lag, and woke up this morning to the horrific news that a terrorist attack struck in the heart of the heart of Tel Aviv, in the Sirona shopping, uh, this plaza and the outside uh, eateries and the restaurants, Four Israelis were murdered. Uh, four is t- Israelis murdered, not in uh, you know Judea and Samaria, not in eastern Jerusalem, but in the heart of Tel Aviv, which has certain implications, political implications, sociological implications. But it turns out that there's actually a lot more information uh, about these murders that I didn't know about. That I think was uh, I thought was very relevant. And I heard Noam Arnon, the the, sp- the veteran spokesperson uh, of Hebron. Uh, considered by many one of the best articulators of, of Jewish rights in Judea and Samaria, talking on today's uh, on a radio program in a lot with a lot radio today, explaining a lot more details about it. Noam, thank you so much for joining us. Um, first thing, who were these terrorists? What what was special about these terrorists? Once again, a group of terrorists are coming from Hebron region, which we've seen a lot of them specifically coming from our region here. What was also special about these terrorists? Well, when I heard the names of those terrorists, they belong to the clan of the Mahamra. Mahamra is a very big clan in southern Hebron Hills, especially in Yatta, where they live. By the way, the biblical name is Yuta. Today, the Arabs call it Yatta. And many Arab names are based on Jewish names, ancient Jewish names that existed here in the land of Israel. Anyhow, the clan of the Mahamra actually were Jewish in the past. Uh, we have many researchers that uh, uh, prove it. The president, Ben Svir, the second president of Israel, he was an historian, he wrote many, many famous books, and he actually visited those clans, and he, show, and, and he describes how they light Hanukkah candles, and they, they actually preserve some Jewish uh, commandments and some Jewish habitants. So, they belong to an ancient Jewish clan that lived here in this country, supposedly from the time of the Bible and the Second Temple period. They went through all the generations, and they went, when the Muslims appeared in this country, some of them were forced to convert to Islam, some of them converted to Islam. Anyhow, they became Muslims. But they still remember their origins as Jews. Now, it's quite famous that in the War of Independence, in 1948, one of the poor guys of the Mahamra happened to be in Gaza. And the mobs in Gaza identified him as a Jew, and they hanged him. They murdered him because he was Jewish. But he was really an Arab, a Muslim person? An Arab for many, many generations. Uh, It must be very clear. They are now Muslims. Mm -hmm. They have some background in Jewish history, but they are Muslims. Anyhow, this poor guy was hanged by Arab mobs as a Jew. And in 1967, when Israel took over, a delegation from this clan uh, went out to meet the, the Israeli officer, begging him to connect this uh, village 
to the water supply and to the electricity, and they said, you know, we are brothers, we are Jews, so please take care for us. But what happened next? What happened later was that Israel, unfortunately, did this horrible crime and brought the PLO, this terrorist organization, to control the area. Arabs in Hebron that I know, that asked me and asked many, many others, please don't bring those terrible guys and terrible gangs upon our heads. They are terrorists. We don't want them here. This is what the Arabs said. This is a terrorist organization. What, what are you doing? They actually uh, were waiting for us to take care for the whole uh, uh, area and to actually to make Israeli sovereignty in this area. And they knew that Israel is the only democracy, modern state, they, that can take care for the rights. We, we must remember, they were never Palestinians. Palestine never existed. So they didn't want anything like Palestinian uh, uh, statehood or something like that. But unfortunately, the government of Israel did not listen to them. And the government of Israel brought the PLO to take care for the whole area. Now the population, the Arab population in this area, is under the pressure of terror. Now many of them had no choice. Israel had abandoned them. PLO, they had him. So they had no choice but to go to the Hamas, which gave them sort of an umbrella of identity, of dignity, of meaning to their lives. Unfortunately, after 20 years, from the Oslo Accord until today, they are in a cage of terror, which Israel had put them in. So a, a whole generation today, an Arab generation, had grew up in this cage of terror that we, Israel, had put them in. Now the results, as we can see, is terror. And unfortunately, they, they take revenge against us for abandoning them, for bringing the PLO onto their, on their heads. And this is a poor situation that, unfortunately, that the state of Israel is responsible for. So what you're saying is, is that by bringing in uh, of this foreign entity of the PLO and then taking charge of the Arabs, what we've done is we've basically allowed a, a terrorist organization, which was going to teach terror, to basically be in control and to terrorize those citizens, those Arabs, and also to teach terror. On the other hand, though, you did say that even in 1948, somebody who was even suspected of being Jewish, and this is way before the PLO, was hanged. So it's not like it's not like it's 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 not like the PLO was the first to introduce anti-Israel and anti-Jewish ideas. Of course, because what I say was that after 1967, when they understood that Israel is the superpower, that the Jews are so strong and brave and clever. This is when they understood that they must uh, have this Jewish uh, uh, sovereignty under Israeli umbrella. Before then, they still, in 1929, in 1948, all those, all those uh, uh, wars and terror actions uh, against Jewish communities, they still had dreams 
to uproot and to throw the Jews out. After 1967, I remember as a child, 12 years old, I remember very, very good, when we went over uh, touring the whole Judea and Samaria, uh, Shechem, Nablus, Ramallah, Tulkarem, Jenin, Hebron, Bethlehem, everywhere, Arabs were standing around and, and, and you know, admiring us and giving us everything and, and fruits and, and grapes and everything. And then we had the chance because they were expecting those angels, those Jews to take over and to bring Jewish sovereignty and modern uh, uh, period and democracy to this area and we did not do it. Mm -hmm. We betrayed our historical mission, our biblical mission, and our Arab friends. Now many of them take revenge now for what we did. What, what I say is not, is not uh, closing our eyes and uh, or our senses against the terror. Terror should be destroyed. All the terrorists must be demolished. That's for sure. It's not a question. But I speak about the population which are not terrorists. And many, many of them are not terrorists. And we have to supply them modern conditions and development and water and education and health and everything. Speaking of non-terrorists, Noam Arnon, uh, you knew one of the people who were uh, victims yesterday, one of the four victims uh, uh, of this terrorism that murdered the uh, Jews in in, uh, in the heart of Tel Aviv. You knew one of them. He's actually a researcher uh, who dealt with the issues of Jews of Judea and Samaria and was the head of the Israel Studies Department at Ben Gurion University. Tell me about him. Michael Fege, I knew him. He interviewed you. He interviewed me a lot of times. He mentioned me in his books. Well, he did not help with our opinion, but he was quite fair man, quite nice guy, and I'm very, very sorry for him to be killed. Yes, he was murdered yesterday, and this was a blow to to uh, uh, to Ben Gurion University. Also, an executive at the Coca Cola plant. Uh, in Bnei Brak was also murdered yesterday and also uh, two, two uh, wives uh, and a lot of people, uh, tens of people injured uh, in this horrible attack. Um, this attack comes in the beginning of Ramadan season. What do we expect for the rest of this Ramadan? Is this going to set the tone? Uh, there was two hours before the attack yesterday, uh, Gadi Eisenkot gave a speech saying, we have overcome the wave of terror. Well... As we know from the past, and I call everyone from our audience to, to make sure that I am right, whenever there were talkings about a sort of political horizon and political solution for the Israeli-Arab uh, conflict, uh, beginning talkings, regional talks and dialogues, all that brings terror. All those processes brings terror and this is what happened when they talk about sort of uh, new down, new talkings be between Israelis, Palestinians, etc. When the terror organization smells this terrible smell, they begin the weakness. To, a weakness, weakness, they begin to act and this is exactly what happened.
And you're referring, of course, to the new coalition, which immediately, this so-called nationalist coalition, immediately began discussions about somehow accepting the parameters of either the Saudi peace proposal, and there's the French peace proposal, and then we want two states, and instead of a, a nationalistic, strong coalition, immediately what we got here in Israel, what we always get when we get the, 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 the strong right, we actually somehow get delivered uh, the, the weak left uh, in terms of uh, land giveaway. It's a problem, certainly. Let's hope for a better uh, period here in this Ramadan, which is going to be uh, already started very tense, and we'll see how it continues. Noam Arnon, you're the spokesman of the Jewish community of Hebron. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, and let's hope for good. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Noam Arnon here in our uh, beautiful offices in Hebron. When are you going to come visit us uh, in Hebron? If you can't visit us, check us out on the internet, hebron.com. Very important. And of course, if you want more great audio from Israel, thelandofisrael.com, it's a great honor and privilege to be part of this network. Now, for the rest of the show, uh, there's audio that I recorded uh, on the road in the United States of America. You're going to hear from Mordechai Levovitz, uh, a gay rights activist who comes from the Orthodox world, and I think that that's going to be interesting and potentially explosive. So you let me know what you think about that by writing me an email, yishai at thelandofisrael.com. Then finally, we'll finish off today's show with a talk uh, with Rabbi Jesse Horn from Yeshivat Kotel on the airplane, so we'll be live on air. So stay tuned. Here's Mordechai Levovitz. Right now I'm on a train to Manhattan. I just landed from Los Angeles, California, and heading early morning. Took the red eye and now heading early morning to the Israel Day Parade. It's a cloudy, over, overcast uh, weather here in New York, but it's great to be in New York on the way to Aliyah, like from Los Angeles to New York. It feels like Aliyah, and one more a shout out to uh, Eretz Israel after the parade. And on the way to the parade, I bumped into an old friend, Mordechai Levovitz, who is a long-standing advocate for Jewish gay rights, uh, LGBTQ rights. We'll get through oh, all yeah. that. And I wasn't just talking about the letters of the subway. I'm talking about letters that stand for something else altogether. Uh, Mordechai and I know each other for a long time. We've had many debates and discussions and friendship uh, and he just came back from Tel Aviv, where Tel Aviv had a giant uh, rally parade, uh, a gay, gay pride parade. Yep. And it was, uh, he said, 200,000. I read in the newspapers 300,000 people. So this was a ma- major gathering uh, of the pro-gay community in Israel. Uh, and it was basically covered all over. He was there as part of a mission uh, for the uh, uh, what is it, Jewish Federation? Yeah, the JFNA, the JFNA. Jewish Federation of North, of North America. America. We had an LGBT mission to uh, to Israel. We were here for about 10 days, and it was incredible. So Mordechai Levovitz, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. And many of my listeners will be very surprised that you're on my show, just because these are not the kind of topics we usually cover. Tell me a little bit about the parade that you just flew to Israel and now you're flying from Israel to get here to join the Israel Day Parade here. So you're marching I'm, both I'm places. I'm going from parade to parade. Okay. <laughs> like a true gay man. <laughs> we <laughs> gather together, it's a parade, like Jackie Mason used to say. Um, first of all, I really like the way you described it. I don't know if you realize, but when you described the parade in uh, Tel Aviv, you described it as the pro-gay parade. And I think that that's so interesting that you framed it that way, because it's not just a parade for LGBT people, because... When you go there, you realize basically it's 90% of Tel Aviv comes out and comes to this parade. So I would say it's 
very significantly people who are allies, family members, and just people who love a great party and love this country. And uh, it's it's so awesome. So and I think I don't think you realized when you said the pro gay parade. No, I but think, it's I really kind of what th- it was. Yeah, that's the way I think of it. Yeah, that is ju- that's exactly the way I think of it, what you just said. You know, uh, some of the critiques of these kind of parades in general have been that they're not really about rights or recognition or pride. A lot of times they're just sex parades where people, <laughs> where, where there's a certain kind of exhibitionism that happens there and there's a critique. You know, I, I, I critique a lot of times I'll be in an airport, there'll be a public screen of some kind and they'll show things that are just not appropriate for children and other things and a lot of times these parades, at least in the past that I have been witness to and I don't know what happened in this one and I, that's my question to you. What was this parade like? Was it about sexuality or was it about, I mean, were there, were there you know, uh, exhibitions of dress that might be inappropriate for children or anything like that? Or was it really about uh, rights or uh, recognition? I think once again, you, with your analogy, you really hit it on the mark. When you go to the airport and you see the ads for perfumes, they're women in bikinis. Uh, When you go to the Puerto Rican Day Parade, uh, there are women in bikinis. Our culture uh, has a certain sexuality to it, for good, for bad. I think it's definitely a question of modesty, but I think it's a greater question of 2016 culture that is somewhat sex-obsessed. I I think it's unfair to say that it has something to do particularly with LGBTQ people. You just don't realize it because we're so used to seeing women in bikinis and men in bathing suits on every single perfume ad and every single Abercrombie and Finch ad. We don't realize it. But the truth is is that that's a question about culture in general and I really I do hear a critique I mean from a Jewish values point of view that modesty is a real value that's a that's a solid critique but it's a critique on modern culture it's not really a critique on LGBTQ people every parade I've ever been to has uh, uh, that kind of exhibitionist not not today's Israel Day Parade Uh, Jerusalem Day Parade you mean well it's the Israel Day Parade on Jerusalem. Uh, 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 oh, no, no, no. Oh, that, that's actually not true. No, that's not true. So uh, the Bukharian float has a woman uh, in a bikini top. You'll see her and a uh, like a belly dancing bottom and she's uh, going through the parade. Uh, so even in the Israel Day Parade here, in, in, uh, w- unfortunately or fortunately, again, it depends what your take on society when when people dance sometimes when people show off they show some skin again like i said i i i, I, get, yeah. I get your point mordechai and we're speaking with mordechai lefavitz uh your organization that you started and you've been an activist in this field for so long really since i knew you yes. and i saw you kind of in in uh starting that that whole process oh, yeah and you took it to you really took it all the way and, and that I'm proud of you in the sense that you had a mission that you wanted to do and, and you took it to kind of its conclusion of, of promoting it on a bigger scale. But I was arguing about with you about it still back then. Mm-hmm. Um, your organization is called Jewish, Jewish Queer, Queer Youth. Youth. Now, this word queer and the word gay, these are words that, that transform. It's almost like the word settler. It's like it starts out being good and then it turns out being bad. Yeah, in your case, good again. In your case, right. <laughs> In your case, you're using the word queer within the, um, the title of, of your organization. Yeah. What's the reason why, there are two reasons why we use the word queer. One, because we're a youth organization and that's the way kids are, are defining and identifying themselves. So I want to be able to, you know, be a little ahead of myself and have the kids uh, feel good. You want to be about, on Snapchat. Yeah, well, I mean, that kind of thing. I mean, <laughs> I'm on Altacaca. I mean, I, I don't even know from Snapchat. But it's important. 
it's it's important that the kids feel good about the name of the organization and that is like i said for better or for worse the terminology that the younger kids are using another good thing about the word queer is it's not just an alphabet soup acronym like that you said before lgbtqi you know whatever it's very hard to stay and remember it's constantly changing if there was one word that can encompass all of them wouldn't that be great so queer but is an umbrella gay? Term. gay was no good well, I, thought, I thought gay was a, I thought gay was a good way to turn it around because that meant like happy queer the word queer it has a negative connotation in, in classical English well the, the issue with calling it gay is that trans people don't consider themselves gay uh-huh. so uh, or bisexual people don't consider themselves gay so it's not fair uh, we want them to feel like they're part of the community how and is it that the transsexual discussion has taken such a prominence when when what is the numerical I mean, it's it's almost as though like here I'm colorblind, as though as though there would be you know such a concern with colorblind people. It seems to me like there's like such a huge discussion over transsexual people, and yet, what what percentage of society is this? Well, I mean, when you think, let, let, let's talk, um, if you want to talk numbers, we can talk numbers. We don't even have to get to the transgender well, people. Let's just talk about intersex people, right? Intersex people are people who Define? are are born with ambiguous genitalia. When they are born, uh, the doctors don't know whether... Uh, they, they can't say. So uh, it, it seems that there is... It's like 0.02% of the population. Very, very small percentage. But the interesting, the interesting thing is you know what percentage of the population they are larger than? I'll give you a little hint. Jews. So <laughs> there are more intersex people... <laughs> then there are Jews. And the but I don't have a Jewish the, bathroom okay. when but, I go to the bathroom. Yeah, wait a second. But the intersex people is actually the minority of the transgender community. The majority of the transgender community, uh, actually, I mean, people say it could be up to 1% of the population, which is much more. Many, 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 many thousands of people more than the Jewish people. So you are talking about a very significant uh, um, segment of the population who identify as transgender. Now, the important thing is that this population is also not doing well in terms of homeless youth, right? Let's say just in New York, homeless youth. 40% of the homeless youth under 18 consider themselves transgender. Wow. That's nuts. So when you think about... It's a significant population of human beings who are not doing well. Immediately, is 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 it a cause or is it a result? We don't really know. Is it because you're homeless, so you you kind of? If you're asking my opinion, my opinion is is that these kids are kicked out of their homes, right? These so? kids are kicked out of their homes because their parents don't accept oh, them. Oh, because they're transgender. Yes. Transgen- right. Not, not because they're homeless. No, they may be no. Yeah. Swinging in different directions. <laughs> right, right. Although uh, that would be I very interesting. No, that yeah. would be an interesting argument. Again, someone can make that sociological argument. However, I think the more compelling argument once you meet them is, is that they were transgender. They, uh, they were starting with gender non conforming behavior at home. Let's say, you know, their mom told them, you got to wear pants. But they were like, no, I need to wear a skirt. And that became so much friction happened. And then they were kicked out of their house because their house was unsafe. So in New York City, which is this huge, one of the largest cities, if not the largest city in the world, 40% of the homeless youth are transgender. We have to do something as humans. As Jews, we have to do something. Right. And that leads me exactly to the next question. The, the first word in your organizational name, and in basically what you've been doing all these years, you have not been only an advocate of homosexual 
uh, and, and other uh, yeah. uh, queer uh, queer yeah. you know, <laughs> See, sexualities. It's yeah, I guess I guess yeah. you're right. Uh, you've actually been an advocate for specifically Jewish. Yes. And that dovetails with also Orthodox. You come from an Orthodox background and we were both at an Orthodox institution, Yeshiva University. One time you or, or your friends very uh, seared into my memory brought uh, the gay Orthodox rabbi, yeah, the rabbi so Greenberg, yes. so-called gay Orthodox rabbi. That's debatable, but in any case, that was one of the things I debated, which is wh- whether are you Orthodox or not. But mm-hmm. certainly, one thing cannot be debated. Were you there? Did you come? Yeah, come on. You came to the event. Come okay, on, good. come All on, right. come on. Gosh, that was like a. That's, that's like amazing. A, that's that was like, like the. That was I'll never forget that. One um, of the first ever Orthodox LGBT events. But right. Yeah. Well, just very quickly, I want to tell you that my memories from that are that. I had to go somewhere else, so I, I raised my hand the minute there was the first chance, and I started arguing with him quickly. Uh-huh. I, I basically got to the point where I said, listen, you're not, you, he, he, he said that he didn't believe that the Torah understood what it was talking about in this case, and therefore I said, oh, in that case, we don't have an argument because you're not really orthodox. Orthodox uh-huh. means uh-huh. that you believe that the Torah is infallible, and if you're Jewish and you like kosher style and you like orthodox and you enjoy it, you want to go to shul, that's one thing, but, but you're trying to fuse uh, orthodoxy and homosexuality, which are not fusible, in my opinion, in any case, or in classical orthodoxy's opinion, but you're not trying to do that. Your thing is Jewish. Jewish, there's no doubt that Jewish, there are Jewish homosexuals, Jewish queer people, and that there is a large amount of Jews who are interested and supportive and want to, in some way, be advocates for the LGBTQ queer community. Well, yeah, I mean, if to, to, the f- to respond to the first thing that you said, I think y- you have to be able to separate a point of view or opinion about a verse, right, which could then consequently make you orthodox or not orthodox, depending on your definition of orthodox, which is an absolutely valid point of view. Many people do describe orthodoxy with a certain understanding of Torah min Hashemayim, so absolutely you're coming from... Uh, 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 the, the as God given from heaven, yes, means God, yes, just translating God, for everybody. Right, right, yeah. God given from heaven, and therefore perfect, infallible. Co- correct, every, right. correct. But, but again, that is one person's point of view about the verse in the Torah. I mean, we 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 no, have that's, a, the, that's what orthodoxy's usual. No, 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 no. That I'm talking about Rabbi Greenberg. Right. Rabbi Greenberg's is is Rabbi Greenberg's reinterpretation of that pasuk is one person's point of view, and we you know we learn Gemara every day. I mean, people have a million different points of view, and of course, points of views have consequences, like you said, and we can debate about that whether it's orthodox or not. However, but what I, what, what the reason why uh, my, my organization is very much connected to orthodoxy, I love it, we, we just arrived to New York. Maybe listen, maybe we can go to a cafe and continue the conversation. What station are we at? We're at Penn. Oh. <laughs> so let's take a pause and we'll continue. All right. All right, folks, we're back here. We took a little break. We were on the, um, the LIRR coming in from Jamaica. That means basically from JFK into Manhattan. And I bumped into an old friend and somebody who really uh, has made a name for himself promoting the agenda and the uh, issues of the LGBTQ. And we kind of made fun of that, that it sounds a little bit like like the subways of Manhattan. Right. Or alphabet soup. Uh, Mordechai Levavitz is also the executive director of Jewish Queer Youth. Youth. Jewish Queer Youth. J. Q-Y. Those are not letters that usually go together. J-Q-Y. Uh, and Mordechai just came back from uh, a delegation. No less than a delegation. Uh, over 100 people. Over 100 people. 
Probably not all gay, but all gay, all gay, or also just or, all LGBTQ, right, except saying, for some staff right, from JFNA who are supporters. Right. Yes, JFNA, which means, by the way, just let's make it clear that means the Jewish money, New York Jewish money, Jewish Federation of North America. Right. Absolutely, it's it, a Jewish money. Yep, right. And oh, that's yeah. interesting. It's exactly the, the the question I wanted to get to you uh, with right now. I don't remember exactly where we got it cut off uh, before we moved. That's I okay. remember, so I'll be able to catch yeah. up too. But my, okay, my, my 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 next real question to you is: I, I was talking about. Um, that some try to describe themselves as orthodox. We, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think that's fitting and I think it's problematic, but we're not going to go there because we're going to go to a different place. You are very much identified as Jewish and anybody who knows you knows that that's a big part of your identity. You're not trying to promote general LGBTQ rights and, and issues. Rather, from, you're coming from a Jewish place. You're trying to make an organization for Jewish people. Um, tell me about that. Uh, let's call it fusion or or support of that community that's specifically jewish you're not dealing so much with gentiles you're and you're of course you're marching in in short succession in the israel in the tel aviv gay pride parade and now at the israel day parade as part of a delegation here as well so it's, you're very much jewish and, and anybody who knows you knows that you're and maybe correct me if i'm wrong Ju- but i guess the title of your organization gives it away that i'm not wrong that Ju- being jewish and judaism and being identified as a jewish person is important to you yes you have a little bug on you. Uh, <laughs> I just said I just <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's let, let me first of all let, let me let me connect it to where we, we came from. In nineteen ninety nine when you had that interaction with Rabbi Greenberg, I think that we were asking the wrong question. And that's why we got the wrong answer. We got we, we ended up in, in kind of uh, Rabbi Greenberg and you ended up in, 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 in a discussion where you actually left feeling kind of bad. And I think Asking the question, can you be orthodox and gay, is an unhelpful question from a uh, Jewish social service perspective. Because that question is unanswerable. It depends what you mean by Jewish, it depends what you mean by orthodox, and it depends what you mean by gay. Can you be orthodox and gay? I don't know. I don't know that answer. But what I do know is that we as Jews have to ask a much better and more important question. What... What is the Jewish community doing about the LGBTQ Jews within the Jewish community that are not doing well, that are suffering, that are isolated, that may be homeless, that, that may, be, may be looking for some sort of dignity some because they have such low self-esteem? What, what are we doing? That question... Right? And that question can even be asked of the Orthodox community and should be asked of the Orthodox and the Haredi community and the Hasidic community and the Sephardi community. What are you doing? Every single yeshiva, we have to ask that of the yeshiva. I agree what, with you. There are gay people in your yeshiva. What are you doing to make sure that they are not suffering? All right. Now, we, we, I just, just let's take a pause on that. I, w- I want to make a... We're, we probably won't be able to, to dig deep into this issue. But I want to say that very much mixed into our discussion, and I already feel it upon myself, is the issue of political correctness and what can be said, what cannot be said. I can tell you that if you even go so far as to mention that homosexuality is a tendency and that tendency by some people may not want that tendency and they may seek some approaches to try to reverse uh, or distance themselves from that tendency... That is almost, you cannot bring that up. Immediately they come down on you like a boom. They, 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 they clamp down on you. You know what's amazing to me? My friend recently said to me that there's a, he teaches at a university. 
he told me that they have these sensitivity sessions where professionals come in, lawyers, and they come and they t- teach them that today in Israel, if you ask a girl out once, that's okay, but a second time, that's already sexual harassment, okay? And this guy <laughs> raised his hand, and he was like, yeah, but I would have never married my wife had that been the truth, okay? So you're not allowed, there's all kinds of limitations on heterosexuality where it's like, whoa, this could be explosive. But within, but, but homosexuality and LGBTQ, that whole thing, that's almost like carte blanche. You can never even say something like it's completely politically incorrect. And by the way, the courts here in the United States have affirmed that it's almost illegal, almost illegal to basically suggest that homosexuality is... For even for those people who want to be cured, maybe say who voluntarily come in, and even that word itself, it's like, whoa, did you just say cure? That's like, are you implying that it's a, a wrongness, a disease, some kind of anything? It's like you can't even throw out, the, the whole condition is that these people that you're talking about that need, uh, that, that need love and support, which I completely agree with, but there's simply no orthodox or classical orthodox option within that discussion for anything but recognition, a coming out, and e- equality, and all that. And it's a, you know, it's a civil rights movement, basically, and the only path forward is to grant full recognition and civil rights and almost encouragement for anybody who senses that tendency. All right. So let me take it down back to reality for a second, <laughs> because you, you, you talk very big and in very big generalizations, and, uh, and it's important to realize go, that go everything ahead. that you're Help saying... Help me out. Yes. And everything you're saying uh, is more complicated. So, when it comes to the issues of conversion therapy, I don't think anybody, certainly not me, I don't want to speak for anybody but myself. So no, you do so speak for yeah. other people. You are a leader well, in this I, movement. I, can, I speak for whatever, whatever people follow me. I'll speak for okay in 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 my you know I'm in my just, capacity just, as leadership. I'm, right, that's, that's all I mean right? to say. I mean some to things say, they will disagree. Some things they right. they but will. I like mean a good leader, your, your you know? opinion is more than well, just a you, private. Thank man. you. I think it's pretty understandable that uh, when people who are gay in the Orthodox community, and especially when they grew up Orthodox and they first realize that they're gay, their first instinct is to wish and hope that they were not gay. Right, that they could marry within the way that their mother and father and community will celebrate. Uh, with it, they'll, I mean, that that kind of they'll they'll live the dream of chuppah, meisim toivim. Like this is a, this is the dream. This is the communal dream. So much so that even single straight people within the Orthodox community feel very marginalized. Right, there's no real place for a single straight person. So being married. Uh, and so it's understandable to me that uh, many, many people in the Orthodox community who are gay, including myself when I just came out, very much wished that I was not gay. So I never want to downplay or pretend it doesn't exist or devalue the idea of, the, of I think, the thousands of people or certainly the hundreds of people that I know <laughs> who, uh, are we video or, okay, who, who, very much wish that they were heterosexual and they wish that there was a process to change them from heterosexual from you, homosexuality you know people like that? To, i know many people i have fr- i have i have friends I, again i was that so i know that from personal thing now and i think i'm not a big believer in reinventing the wheels i believe that you know the halacha the masorah the way that the jewish community evolved there's something to it 
You know what? And I understand that there are many people who would love, 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 love to eat bacon. And bacon is a wonderful thing. They smell bacon and they're like, oh, geschmack bacon, right? <laughs> and, and they're suffering because they wish they could just like everyone else eat bacon. If, if there was, but I, I would be very hesitant. I notice, it'd be very, it's very interesting that the Orthodox community in the last hundred years response to this need to eat bacon has not been to, uh, don't worry, go to a psychologist. They will help you not like bacon anymore. That's it. You have a problem. I understand your problem. That's it. Go to a shrink and the three. No, that's, that hasn't been the response. Uh, and yet, be- why? Because uh, it's very are normal. Re- are you referring to products that taste like bacon? Well, ah, so. So what has our response been, right? I always look back to look forward. Kedem, Kadima. It's the same thing. You have, to, you have to look back to look forward, right? So what has been the holy orthodox response, right? What do we do? We make uh, Hebrew National, right? Hebrew National is so good that even the guy eat Hebrew National, right? We're delicious. We have sausages that are better than your bacon sausage. We have delicious food. Go to a deli. Jews Let's reinvented not exa- the whole deli, wait, 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 right? You're exaggerating. The, 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 we, we've never created uh, our bacon. Is no, no uh, Gentile thinks, it's no oh, that Jewish bacon well, is better not, than real pig bacon. What are we getting but to? our pastrami. Okay, but that's legal. That's ah, what, that's, that's, ah, there's no problem. There was never. This is, but this is what I'm saying. What I'm saying is is that we, that <laughs> psychology and psychologists and calling calling something you know wanting to do something that's that's problematic in halacha, right, is normal, and and psychologists and psychiatrists are not the people to go to when you struggle with not w- with wanting to do something that is usher. Now. They're not. We want no. What about what about AA meetings or or many other forms of many people struggle with all kinds of unwanted uh, addictions I, and problems? I, I, I aren't there? Aren't there? I, but I, you, wait, wait, again, you know, you no, know, what, no, you know, that's what? a very good We're question. And I, can, I, I can answer. That. And I'll let you. I will let you. I'll let you answer important. that. Yeah, I'll let you answer that. I, I do want to let you, but I want to make a caveat, and that is, I don't want to get into this too far, and I'll tell you why, because the truth is, I don't know if I understand that plight Thank and I want to have a certain amount of sensitivity for the plight <laughs> I, I do but I, I, I'll I, reframe it very quickly to go back to your question my point is is that the point and the problem with reparative therapy is not that people want to change the, the question is whether whether or not you can use the tactic of psychology and mental health to change someone's sexuality so that immediately takes all I don't, the, I don't know the answer to all that. the politics out of it let's take all the I just know that you're not allowed that's to say just, that uh, that's just that's just a that's just a, a a a classic question that needs to be studied. If I had narcolepsy, right. uh, all of these things, right? In every, I'm I'm a therapist, so I, I'll tell you one of the things we learn when we, we we learn mental health is that we question what are the limits, what what are the things that what are interventions that work and what are interventions that don't work. We have blind studies, a double blind study. We have we have I mean unbelievable research and scientific method. And then we come out in the end with some research, and if the research shows that a process works, that's within the um, canon of mental health. And if it shows, for example, if someone just wants to be taller, it doesn't matter how many, but you go to a therapist for day, day and night, you're not going to come taller in therapy, right? And if someone, right, if someone said that you can go to therapy to get taller, that person is doing something, is doing a fraud, 
right? Because you can't go to therapy. You can go to therapy to feel better about being shorter. Absolutely. 100%. Why are Jews so uh, concerned with, <laughs> uh, with, with, uh, with uh, the issue? Why are they so um, out- disproportionately representative in the leadership roles of the gay world? Why is Israel, for example... Is it because of... First of all, I don't think that Larry Kramer is not... That Larry Kramer, which is like the leader of the, um, the modern gay rights activist movement, the one who really got us to th- start thinking about the, government, the government's response to HIV, he was a proud Jew. Uh, I think that the... Uh, is or isn't? Is, is uh, a proud yeah. Jew. Yeah. I mean, so the, the, we, uh, we actually are the leaders of the LGBT movement. Oh, uh, so, so, that's, so you're agreeing Jew. with that assertion. Okay. I think we are. I thought you were assumption, assuming that we aren't. But I want to... No, I'm back. assuming they are. I say, yeah, why oh, are they I so... We are. Oh, why, so why, why is it? Why do Jews... I don't know. Why are there, why are there so many Jews on the Supreme Court? Right. You know, why, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. We're amazing people. What can I say? I mean, listen, I'm all about... I am all about pride. I think you got to look at yourself and you got to feel great about yourself and you never should apologize about yourself. I'm never a big uh, one of these people, oh, I'm so sorry, I can't, I can't, I'm sorry that my skin is this color, I'm sorry that I, I'm part of this religion, I'm sorry that I live in Lawrence and I don't live in Farakaway. I don't, I don't understand, no. Everybody needs to look into themselves and see what they have that makes them amazing because you know what? We have a lot of stuff that makes us disgusting too. Right? So we can get very depressed. And the important thing to go on to be a happy person, to be able to take care of other people, is to be able to find that strength within yourself and be proud and love it. So yes, 100%, Jews are incredible people. What we're able to accomplish in terms of leadership, in terms of giving to the world, in terms of science, is miraculous. But you know who are also great people? Indians. When I, the actual Indians. Unbelievable what, what, what we've learned from India. You know, we're also great, great people. England, what, 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 you know, what would we be? Where would we be without Great Britain and the people? So, yes, we are amazing people. We should have a lot to be proud for. And, yes, we are very influential in the LGBT community, as we should be. I'd expect so. Mordechai Levavitz <laughs> is the executive director of Jewish Queer Youth. And uh, he just came back from marching in Israel. Um, those mar- the march in Tel Aviv is not uh, so much uh, contested, but the march in Jerusalem is. And uh, the question is, borders, borders, is it fair for a community to never want to accept this thing? I, is it, I, I, one yeah, second, no, one second, yeah, you'll get question. it. Or is it fair for another community, let's say the gay community, to say, no, this is something that needs full acceptance, it, it needs to be there? Where's the line that... Uh, Segments of society can say, I don't want this in my life. I don't want this. And I, and I see this in classical terms. I've seen this fight before. And I don't want to lose it. I don't want my children you, to succumb to it. You have seen this fight before. Because before we, before we were on uh, the radio, or we, we were having a discussion a little about what, what do Israelis love to discuss about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And we both mentioned that... that, that not in, a commu- in, in every community, a Jew, there should not be a community where a Jew shouldn't be able to live. And not only live, be proud that they're a Jew. Right? Because what's the point of living without dignity? Right? Every community, they should live and be proud and have a flag and show, I am Jewish. The exact same thing should be for LGBTQ people, especially if they already live there. Right? There are just as many LGBTQ people but living in Nation Arm. In Meisharim, 
I am a proponent of having the gay pride parade not in West Jerusalem and Jaffa. The gay pride parade should go through Meisharim the same way that you are proponents that the Israeli parade should go through the Muslim quarter. We're the same in that sense. It's an interesting... It's an interesting um, well, nobody ever should feel ashamed about who they are. No, it's Life not about shame. It's about actually, dignity Wait a minute, and wait a minute, wait a minute. But it's about respecting also other people's borders. They shouldn't feel ashamed. Wait a minute, hold Correct. on. They shouldn't feel ashamed uh, that they don't... That, that That's against their religion. There's no... They, they, they shouldn't feel ashamed to say, no, we don't want this in our... Uh, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. And when you go into an ultra-Orthodox neighborhood, it says very clearly on signs, please wear modest clothing. This is important to us. And, and, and if somebody comes in with immodest clothing, it's offensive to them. It's offensive to them. In this world of, of offense, uh, you know, the constitutional right to be offended, uh, it's, it's like the conservatives never have a right to be offended anymore. Not, by the way, first of all... I don't mean conservative I, no, in, a, in an American sense. Let me tell you somebody something. Who wants, you, well, no, don't no, get stuck I, on that. No, 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 no. Let me, let me tell you something. I, you're, you're talking to the wrong guy. I don't think liberals have a right to be offended. <laughs> I think everybody should be offended. Wait, but you said you said think, very I, I, passionately I, a minute yeah. ago that the gay pride parade should go through yes, Masharim. Hundred percent. But you understand that that is very offensive to them. Yeah, and, and and if they, what if they said that black people should, are offensive? They don't like black. They, but again, but I'm asking you the other right side. To, you have a right to your offense. You can feel. But any can't you have right way. to your neighborhood? Your, no, your offense. Is your it public? Offense. Is everything public? You can't have. You can't. Maybe you can think. Can you? No, let me let me answer your question. Right, yeah. I think that in terms of dress, right, in terms of dress, in terms of modesty, there and 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 what can be considered immodest, what can be considered, uh, you know, overly sexual, it could be that there is a general understanding that when you are, meaning every, everybody, it's not it, this affects everybody the same way, right? That, uh, that that we all could dress. For example, we all dress in suits when we go to visit the president. If you came in a beach, if you came, if you came in a uh, um, bathing suit and, and flip flops, you probably wouldn't be able to get in. Oh, is that no? That's something I can I can believe in. But an identity based on who you are, I'm not saying that gay people should walk uh, in their town yeah, but naked. A, but, a, but, but what I am saying is that that gay kid who lives in Meisharim has a right to not only live there, has a right to be proud about who he is, be able to have a flag about who he is, who he is, who he is. Not how he acts, not how he dresses, who he is. Is a and gay person is, is not, a gay there's person, no modesty is against gay that. an identity? Of course. It's not a sexual proclivity? It's like to, it, 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 it's also, right? It's just, it just seems like, like you keep Shabbos, right? That orthodox, it's like Orthodox, right? Orthodoxy is, is, is well, a is halachic my, proclivity and there's also an identity and that's, that's why we have the problem. Some things are, are you know, um, listen, that's... That's the interesting thing about identity, right? You could you could describe me in front of you as a male white ha- man with with blonde hair, and that's all you see. Or you can say I'm Mordechai. I am, you know, this. I, you know, th- there is a sense of identity and who I am that that's uh, connected more to self-esteem, right? What I do and and description descriptive terms, right? I ate oatmeal today. I ha- I don't have a right to be so proud that I ate oatmeal today, but I have a right. To be have a self-esteem about who I am. That's because that's that's like we said, connected to dignity. There's no life without dignity. There's a lot more questions that we have to discuss, and this is of course one of the big issues of our time. There's no question about it that this whole issue of sexual politics, and when I said by the way, also we've seen it in the past, this was a, a war that was fought in a Hanukkah in part is the fight between orthodoxy 
in Greco-Romanism, there was a huge component of the, of homosexuality. I'm not. I'm not equating understanding of Hanukkah, but all right. <laughs> Uh, I think that's the more accurate. I think it's revisionist well, to make can, it all we about. Talk about we'll, ha- we'll, have to, we'll have to do it at a different time. The point is, I think you'll agree with me. This is one of the hot and big issues of our time, and it's and it's and it's a big issue because it's a question of morality. It's a question of rights. It's a question of dignity. It's a question of God. It's a question of Bible. It's a question of of conservatism versus versus opening up. In some sense, listen, me too. I am also li- wait, yes. I'm me, a liberal me person. Me too is very important. What you just said because. With, within it, myself, when, no, because there's when a struggle it comes these to things. those struggles, yeah. w- again, I don't believe in reinventing the wheel. You and I, we face those struggles as Jews and as Jews who believe that halacha is important and meaningful every day, and especially the Torah, for example, right? We struggle, all of orthodoxy really struggles with this idea that a man can divorce a woman and a woman cannot divorce a man. We have... Look, the whole Aguna problem and, 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 and hundreds, if not thousands, of women are stuck because of this law. Now, we have a lot of compassion for Agunas. And we understand that Agunas, years ago, 100, uh, 30, 40 years ago, no, there was no even talk about Agunas. But now, there's a sense of talking about Agunas. The point is, is that morally speaking, right, more, your morals, your sense of morals tells you that a man should be able to divorce a woman and a woman should be able to divorce a man. Uh, but you also believe that the Torah does not agree. So you, you, Yishai, have a conflict between your own morality and what it says in the Torah. And you struggle with that, Yisrael. That's what it means. You struggle with it. You, you, you are not in the uh, overt Orthodox fold any longer. You're uh, culturally. What you mean. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, it's, I'm phrasing it more as a question, really. I'm, I'm not trying to be declarative. I'm asking. All right. But outwardly speaking, you're not sporting the look of. You're not wearing a kippah at this time. Right. I, I don't know. I'm not going to ask you if you're wearing tzitzit or whatever it is. I'm not. not I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not going to. I'm not going to get into your tzitzit. Right, right. I'm not. I'm not going to ask you if you put on tefillin this All morning. Right. I don't See, know now, if you keep now, the Sabbath. Now you're getting too uh, too personal. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't know. But but it, there is uh, maybe was orthodoxy too choking uh, for me personally. Well, for me personally, I think everybody... Because, you know, uh, we're in New York and we could talk a lot about, like, kosher kind of style. Like, you have a lot of Jewishness, a lot of knowledge about halakha, but you yourself are not there in the my, same place. My, it's, for me, it really has less to do with my, necessarily my LGBT identity and more to do with, unfortunately, this divisiveness, this focus on the outside. There are things about orthodoxy, the, the, the people who are not left, the people who are left out of the, out of the th- focus on money. There, there are things within the orthodox community that unfortunately to me made it very hard for me to be so excited about identifying with the people that I think need to, with, that I think have so much value and bring so much purpose to this world. But unfortunately, external things, not internal things, external things seep into the from community and distract it from really the or the, the light within, which I do believe so much. So ultimately, identities are very, very often has to do with where do you associate yourself communally and politically, denominationally, and it's hard. It's very hard for me to do that when I see women not being treated well, when I see the poor not being treated the same as the not poor, when I see the divisions over Israel, they see the divisiveness that has come to define the orthodoxy instead of a wholesome of love that I... 
and, and that's my issue if, yeah, but what uh, about if, you, God? if you want to add. What about G-D? Ah, what about that? I think, I think it, my relationship with Hashem is, uh, isn't, isn't is, 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 is a cultivated, interesting, and I'm, I'm, I, it's a per, obviously a personal relationship, and uh, I, I can't say that, uh, you know, it's like an old married couple, right? <laughs> uh, we absolutely love each other, but we want to kill each other. <laughs> the difference is, it's much easier for him to kill me. Ah, all right. <laughs> Mordechai Levavitz, with that, uh, we have to finish our interview. We're sitting somewhere underneath Penn Station in some coffee shop. Uh, very New York discussion also, I, I think. Well, before, you end, before you end, I just want to say one thing. Go ahead. I really do. I, I think it's important. Go ahead. This is all, it. All of the ideological discussions that we're having is fascinating and should be had and should be had. But before anything, we need to know that today, we talked about Meisha Arim, today there are hundreds if not thousands of gay and lesbian and trans kids in Meisha Arim that are suicidal right that don't have, that are being kicked out of their homes that don't know where to do so regardless of what and how we can we can argue on the tactic right we can argue on what to do about it how to do but let's come together and maybe have different tactics right let's care about the jews in our community that need us we are healthy and we have the means and we have the power let's focus and help these kids and hopefully make it so that in the next generation we don't have to worry about taking care of them because they won't be in that position already let's let's both and all of your listeners at least agree on that if we can the rest is details i certainly agree with you that um there's a human face and i've always approached this issue which i've had my i have my opinions and i'm passionate about discussing them whenever whenever it opens up um that first and foremost there's the other person there and he's a real person he or she's a real person or they is now has become the thing. By the way, I, I take issue with that. I don't think that you could, even though you might have some kind of uh, a sexual uh, confusion, whatever it is, queerness, whatever it is, I still don't think you can change from a singular to a plural. Many, many people in the LGBT community feel the same way as you. Yeah. I mean, it, that, those are debates and uh, that, that we will continue to have, and that's life. We argue about things. <laughs> Mordechai Levavitz. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But it's we love each other more in the argument, right? The Gemara, that, that's, how, that's how we create Avas Yisrael, through the debate. No doubt about it. It's, it's, a, it's a very human discussion. Part of me also thinks it's a very New York discussion, all this. There's something, <laughs> there's something about the plurality <laughs> about, of New York. And I have to tell you, I just flew in from Los Angeles, and I took a, sigh, I took a breath of relief when the plane landed in New York. There's just something so incredibly... Um, I don't like these silly words like tolerant or, or multicultural, but there's a, there's just a there's just a sigh of relief. There's something there's very Jewish about New York. There's something very Jewish, very Jewish. and very global, and and this discussion is is where things like this. Let's can go happen. to the parade. We're late. That's right. All, All right. right, Mordechai Levavitz, Jewish queer youth. You are listening to the Yishai Fleischer Show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mordechai Levavitz. Not an easy topic for sure. I want to hear your feedback and thoughts. Write me an email, yishai at thelandofisrael.com, yishai at thelandofisrael.com. And right now in beautiful Hebron, check out our website, hebron.com. Connect to the story of the fathers and mothers who are buried here. Be in touch anyway. Be part of the story. Next, uh, Rabbi Jesse Horn is a rabbi who I know from Yeshiva Takoto, and I bumped into him. On the 747-400-LR, flying home to the land of Israel. Got a chance to talk to him about his views, why he was in America, and the upcoming holiday of Shavuot. So happy Chag Shavuot. Here's Rabbi Jesse Horn. Rabbi Isaac Nissenbaum, one of the founders of the religious Zionist Mizrahi movement, wrote, 
The objective of Mizrahi is the total revival of our nation in all its aspects, to revive Judaism in our hearts and to revive our hearts for Judaism. The Land of Israel Network is powered by the Mizrahi World Movement. Have you ever planted a grapevine? What if the grapevine happened to be in the land of Israel? Not only that, but if you were a Christian planting this grapevine in the mountains of Israel, you would be fulfilling prophecy that Isaiah and Jeremiah foretold more than 3,000 years ago. I'm Joshua Waller with Hayuvel, and I invite you to fulfill prophecy on the mountains of Israel by joining us this harvest. Go to Hayuvel.com, that's H-A-Y-O-V-E-L.com for more information. All right, folks, you are listening to the Yeshai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Jerusalem to the world, and you're a part of it wherever you are. Shalom and welcome to the Land of Israel Network, thelandofisrael.com. And we are usually broadcasting from Jerusalem, but you know that I have this tendency to be on the road, and in this case, uh, part of my uh, trains, planes, and automobiles uh, style, uh, we are once again in the airplane, so we're on air right now, in the air over some European places with some little lights below. And it's nighttime right now, somewhere over Europe, and we are heading into the land of Israel, coming back after a long trip, a nine-day trip that led me to beautiful places like Phoenix, Arizona, Los Angeles, uh, Camarillo, Camarillo, just joking, Camarillo, California, and, of course, the great New York City. Uh, so that's all been great. And then the whole time, been counting the Omer. That's the 49-day count from the second day of Passover until Shavuot, Pentecost, count 50. Um, it's been also a great adventure to be able to see so many great people like my good buddy Andrew, Andy, Andy Wells uh, from uh, Connecticut and New York, who uh, it was so great to see him, a listener to the show. It was so awesome. And many others, and many other listeners uh, to the show Pinchas Farber and his awesome wife, my good friend Mordechai Fishman. Just in general, uh, got a chance to see fantastic people throughout uh, the United States, lovers of Israel, supporters of the cause. And the whole time been counting. Oh, I got to Pico Robertson. Wow, that was awesome. Pico, that I, like, I ate the kosher food of Pico. I went to Mexico. Finally ate some of that famous Mexican food of Los Angeles. And in general, uh, connected with a lot of good people and a lot of good energy. And at this time... Uh, and all this time, I've been counting the Omer. And that Omer count, that 49-day count, until Shavuot, my personal favorite holiday. And during Shavuot, I try to spend my time in my favorite yeshiva, I'm not going to lie, which is Yeshivata Kotel, the Kotel, Kotel Yeshiva overlooking the Temple Mount, the Western Wall from its Beit Midrash. I've been to many Batei Midrash. I've been many uh, study to Torah study halls. But for some reason, and I don't know why, really, I have no, no real explanation, that's the one for me. I just feel good there. And one of the uh, uh, outstanding characters at Yeshivat HaKotel and the Beit Midrash there is also one of the taller ones. And his name is Rabbi Jesse Horn, or Rav Jesse. Uh, and he is a senior educator at Yeshivat HaKotel, coming back right now from a wedding that he officiated in the United States. One of the beautiful things that... I guess he gets to do is to connect with his students that, that he taught and changed their lives over the, over the years, and then they need him. They, they, they call him into America uh, to help officiate the wedding. Rabbi Jesse, we're getting ready for Shavuot. Thanks so much for being with me here on the 747-400 and the good folks at LL. Pleasure. Good to be here. Nice to see you. So, Rabbi Jesse, um, 
Tell me about the wedding. Tell me why you went out to the United States. You went for a real short uh, little look at, like Torah strike. You, 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 you like had a little uh, jet strike over there. Yeah, it was quick in and out. A uh, day and a half I was there. One of my close students, a close Talmud, a close student, his name is Tzvi Goldstein. Uh, got married and we developed a relationship about five years ago. He was one of my closest students. We kept in touch and he was kind enough to fly me out to officiate the wedding. It was particularly special, not just to spend time with him and the other students, but he actually finished at the wedding all the Gemaras that exist, um, which is called the Siyam Shas, a tremendous accomplishment to finish all the Gemaras that exist, thousands and thousands of pages, each one uh, with tremendous depth. And it was just a fantastic experience to combine the two. On the one hand, his wedding and moving forward into this career with such a wonderful accomplishment. So he finished studying all of Shas, all of the Talmud at his wedding. That is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Where was the wedding? Uh, Brooklyn, New York. He actually married a, a Sephardi girl. It was a fantastic chuppah. You really felt a tremendous uh, flavor of different Jews. There were Sephardim there. There were Ashkenazim there. There were people a little bit more to the right, a little more to the left. One of the rabbis actually was under the chuppah with me from Chicago. Rabbi Zev Cohen walked over and said, it's a real achdus of Klai Yisrael, Jews coming together from all different dimensions. It was just very, uh, it was great to see, great to see the different styles and customs kind of pulling together and making a wonderful, wonderful chup as it was. Now, one of the places in this world, I didn't get out to this on this trip actually, but one of the places, oh, I, actually I did, I walked, interestingly enough, my mother, who, uh, God bless her, uh, still living in New York but making Aliyah this summer, uh, asked me to bring my daughter with me, she's on this flight on the way back home as well, and uh, one of the things that we did was we actually took a subway to Brooklyn and walked across the Brooklyn Bridge. How many people do you think were there? Thousands. Thousands were crossing the Brooklyn Bridge. I couldn't believe it. What a mass of people. In any case, very beautiful views, of course. Uh, one, of the things, one of the things about Brooklyn is that it really does unite. But by itself, that borough, and, and uh, together with Queens, really does unite tremendous amount of different kinds of Jews, Russian Jews, Hasidic Jews, Sephardi Jews, all kinds of Jews. And when you're there... There's, for me at least, uh, just like in general in New York, some kind of tension or frustration or challenge in that, for my estimation, it's like the other Israel. There's like a million Jews there almost, 800,000 Jews, nobody really knows the real number, all the different stripes, and a lot of Judaism. Don't say that it's just some kind of big uh, pool of assimilation. Not, not at all. It's, uh, it's quite Jewish, and the flavor is very Jewish. And for us, people who can be broadly identified as Zionists, people who are yearning for the land of Israel and the re great return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, there's a tension, there's a pain. You're at a, really one of the premier Zionist yeshivot, famous for helping people get into the atmosphere and the mood of, of, of joining the army and, and making Aliyah. What's it like for you to go to a wedding that's on the one hand bringing together all these various types of Jews, as you said, Achdus, which is unity, and, and finishing the Shas, which is the value of Torah, and yet it's all happening in Brooklyn. Is there a tension there? I'm not sure there's a tension. There certainly are different uh, values that exist in the world. On the one hand, one of the values is, is Zionism and building the country and people moving there, especially those who could. And that's a fantastic thing. And uh, on the one hand, it, it, you know, it's certainly always nicer when wonderful occurrences happen to take place in Israel. Simultaneously, I think one has to understand that right now where we are as a nation, uh, the whole world's not ready to move to Israel tomorrow and therefore to continue religious success and growth there is fantastic. There is a certain sense of tension. On the one hand, every time I go back to America, I feel a certain sense at home and a certain sense away from home at the same time. 
I grew up in uh, New Jersey, and I know the streets, I know the neighborhoods, and as I crossed the bridges, it, you know, I, I remember I, back to childhood, crossing these bridges with my parents in the car and whatnot. Simultaneously, it's a tremendous privilege for me to raise my children in the land of our forefathers and, you know, raise my children overlooking, whether overlooking the Harabais when they come to Yeshiva for Shabbos or whether it's just living in the Vey Daniel where we live and walking on what they call the Derech Havot, the path of our fathers, which is, according to many, the, many uh, archaeologists and academics, the path that Avram Yitzchak took when they went to the sacrifice, when Avram went to sacrifice his son at the story of the Akedah. So on the one hand, yeah, listen, you have a lot of Judaism in Brooklyn and other areas in uh, New York, and for that matter, the world. And it's a fantastic thing to connect to those areas of Judaism. It's also nice to connect to those areas of Judaism in the Jewish home, and I guess that's even nicer. So there's a lot of what I like there, and I guess even more what I like in Israel. Yeah, you, you, you know, it, and I, I just want to clarify, it's because of the liking that there's a tension. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not because, you know, you go to some places, and I've been to some Jewish communities where you're like, Okay, this thing's on its way out, and I don't know why you guys are here. And there's been articles written like that. I remember that Carolyn Glick once got in trouble after she wrote a, a pretty scathing article about South, uh, South African Jewry. I would never talk in the way she, she, she spoke, but there was, there was a, you know... But in, in, a, in New York and America, it's the opposite. It's, it, there's, a, there's a success and an attraction there, and that's why I think uh, America is most like Babylon, Bavel, in terms of Jewish uh, historical experience where the Jews really never got kicked out of Babylon. It never ended up in some kind of horrible thing until very, very late. Basically, <laughs> some people say, my mom told me that, that it was Saddam Hussein who closed some of the yeshivot of Surah and Pupandita at the end of the day. The, the, the bottom line is, is that um, that's where the tension exists. So, Rabbi Jesse, do you have anything to, to add about the, uh, the, this phenomenal election season? It, it's, it is very unusual, isn't it? There's some really unusual characters there. Well, for starters, I would uh, make two quick, I guess, precursory statements. Number one is I'm, I'm not 100% sure I agree with your total assessment of the characters, but we'll leave that aside for right now. Secondary is a rabbi. I try my best to avoid the discussion of politics, especially American politics, because I feel that my primary job is to help people grow spiritually and religiously, and I find myself often distancing myself from people who I disagree with politically, and I, I try my best to clarify this, what I think the Torah values are especially in America, and you should use those values to figure out how you should feel and how to vote on the issues. And for me to, so to speak, spell that out, I think I end up doing, causing more damage than end up, uh, than, than good. I end up, yeah, it's very unusual. You know, a lot of what interests me is that on the one hand, I feel that there's this incredible forward movement, a progressive world moving towards a more liberal world, and it's speeding up incredibly quickly. I think people are pushing it forwards more and more and more. And those are a lot often the Bernie Sanders supporters. I think they're looking just to push the envelope as far as they can. And I think there's almost a backlash. I think that's what really the Donald Trump supporters, many of them capture. Let's slow down. Let's not, let's not just take this as crazy as possible. Let, you know, let, let's slow down on immigration. It's not, you know, let's not take Western culture to the point where perhaps it undermines itself and destroys itself. The truth is that Trump supporters, I think, fall under two categories. On the one hand, there's the more, I guess, uh, pegged group, you know, that people talk about the uneducated, you know, uh, th that type of crap. But there's a lot of sophisticated, well-educated Ivy League Trump supporters who I've come in contact with in my life. Many of them feel, even that Trump may even be a buffoon, they just feel like he's putting his fingers on all the right issues. And even if he has an uncoherent plan as to how to implement it, he, they genuinely are frustrated with the almost carelessness and dangerous 
speed that the world is moving in without any sense of checks and balances. And, you know, they feel like Trump's going to kind of slow that down. And even if he's a little bit racist or, 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 or politically incorrect or he says things that really are hurtful and offensive, their response is like, enough with the world tiptoeing around getting offended. Let's just call it how it is. And I feel that's a lot of the tension going on in America, for that matter, the world, in the Orthodox world, in the Jewish world. I feel like a lot of the tension going on in the world today is on the one hand, Western values take us to an extreme conclusion. And if we value them and nothing else, we should be moving with it. And many people out there say, slow down. Like those, the ramifications of taking Western values to their extreme is just dangerous. And it may even undermine the culture and fabric of society that we have today. It certainly undermines identity, I think. Uh, if, if, if a you know, w- white and Christian country uh, f- kind of forgets that, or in our case, let's say a Jewish country for Jewish ethnicity with, with Jewish values uh, incorporates liberal values, ultra-liberal values to the extent that it forgets its own identity and its own foundational identity, it certainly is dangerous. Liberal values are good, but when they, when they start to kind of like... Put yourself, you put yourself in a situation where you have forgotten your own clear identity and what it's all about, not in a xenophobic and racist manner, but in a certainly grounded that you know what your house is and that you know that you're the owner of the house and you know that who's supposed to be living in that house and how they're supposed to behave. Uh, that's certainly the case. You think that Israeli Americans, meaning to say people with American citizenship living in Israel, should vote in the American election? I, th- I think, yeah, I think um, as American citizens, we have uh, certainly a right to vote. I pay taxes as an American, and I feel uh, an obligation to the best American citizens I can. Obviously, I feel a, 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 an equal, if not greater, responsibility to Israel. I think that's where my heart is first and foremost, both as a Jew and as a, an Israeli. That having been said, sure, I'm, I think I'm, I try my best to be a wonderful American citizen. I pay taxes, and I, I vote. I think not just I have a right to, but a re- responsibility to, and I think... Uh, you know, I mean, perhaps even as a religious responsibility, one should help navigate and guide the world in the best possible direction they think that it can go in. And if voting in an American election will help bring the world to a better place, or I imagine certainly the, the America has the power to do that, you know, uh, so I think one should use the values that they've cultivated through Torah, wherever they come from, and, uh, and make the best possible decision they can. That's an interesting point. I, I think I appreciate that point. Um, and I'm going to have to reassess a little bit my own personal take on this because for a long time I thought to myself I'm not going to be voting I haven't voted and the reason is is because I thought to myself I don't want to be kind of dishonest I'm not really a resident of the United States I'm not as concerned I'm concerned with my issues which are Israel issues so why should I vote in a foreign sovereign in a foreign country uh, when it's really not no gay it doesn't touch me so much on the other hand yes as a Jew I should be concerned with navigating helping navigate the world and I am a citizen of that country and I do respect it and I do pay taxes there so I have that right, and I should exercise it. It, it. It's an interesting tension. It's an interesting... I always think it's like an ethical tension. Yeah, what would you want to say? Now, I would just add that, you know, if you're nervous that you may have an Israeli agenda over an American agenda, I think happens to be an Israeli agenda is a legitimate agenda. It's for the best of the world. And there's all sorts of American citizens voting with significantly less uh, noble agendas than what's best for Israel, one of our wonderful allies. And I think that you should not feel dishonest taking into account you know, what your values are. One of the great things about the American country is that they allow you to have your values and respect your values and encourage your input and vote based upon those values. Interesting. So if anything, I think that's something valuable that has come out. We're speaking with Rabbi Jesse Horn. Uh, he's a senior educator at Yeshivat HaKotel. 
We're at the uh, middle, in the galley of the 747-400 LL. So speaking of Torah, we, you keep on going back to this word Torah. Another way of talking about Torah is the word Sinai, the Sinaitic experience, receiving the Torah at Sinai. And we're about to enter into a holiday that, that in some ways is the least, ide- least identified in the Bible. It's a huge holiday. It's one of the three festival holidays. And yet, what its rationale is, is, is hidden. And we know through the Torah that is passed down through the oral tradition that this holiday is about the receiving of the Torah. And basically, 49 days on the 50th day after uh, the exodus from Egypt, uh, we receive the Torah at Sinai. And so, too, we go through this purification process of these 50 days. Uh, I also have tears in my eyes a little bit about the question of whether I have been able to completely prepare myself in the way I would have liked to prepare myself in, in these days. And I know the answer is no, and I have a few more days to just uh, really push it hard to, to, to get there. Shavuot happens to be my, my favorite, 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 favorite holiday. It's my number one holiday. I don't know really why, but I know I feel it. And it's also tied into the Baal Shem Tov. It's tied into David Melech, King David. Uh, they have their, their yard sites on these days, their, their passing days. We read the Book of Ruth, one of the great uh, biblical narratives. Shavuot is a time of great drama when the mountain, the Sinai Desert Mountain, turned green, where the, the, the ram's horn was heard, where, where, where the commandments were kind of heard simultaneously, different parts of the commandments, where the Jewish people actually died when they received the first two commandments and a massive nuclear explosion of, of, uh, of God's revelation and God gave them their souls back. There's something about this holiday which like blows you away if you can, if you can feel it. And certainly most, most, most felt uh, on and below Mount Moriah, uh, which is the Mount, si- Mount Sinai, kind of the Sinaitic experience happens every year. The revelation happens every year. And you get to be part of that throughout the year in preparation for this experience because you're really teaching and bringing people the Sinaitic experience really from Mount, Mount, Mount Moriah right across from it. That's a pretty big privilege, Rabbi Jesse. Tell me a little bit about that and and a little bit about Shavuot. How do you, uh, we're flying to the land of Israel in this darkness right now. And we're about to just enter the maelstrom of Shavuot. I always say there's two things in the world that people want. One thing is happiness, and the other thing is happiness, pleasure, and enjoyment. And the other thing is truth. And the only way a truth and purpose and a sense of mission, the only way you can synthesize the two is with religion. And I think our, our, our message should be to the world exactly that. If you want to live a, a, an enjoyable, pleasuresome life, I think the Torah clearly is looking to help facilitate while simultaneously a life of meaning and truth and purpose where you can look into the mirror and say, I'm doing what, not just what I want, what I believe is objectively correct, what I believe God wants. If you can synthesize those two together, if you can integrate those values of truth on the one hand and happiness on the other, I think that's a fantastic thing. And perhaps even the Pasuk, the verse, Ivdu et Hashem besimcha, to serve Hashem with happiness. It's not just serve Hashem, but do it in a sense of happiness. Synthesize those two. Love, you know, the decisions we make are based upon living lives that are enjoyable and happy on the other hand do what we think is right and perhaps there's no greater way of accomplishing that than the Torah and I think if we can show that to the world that the values of the Torah are on the one hand true and on the other hand you know enhance one's enjoyment I was talking to a different person on the flight in and she was telling me she grew up with a Jewish mother and a Catholic father and Catholicism was all about you know all about what you can't do and what you shouldn't do Judaism is all about questions she said the reason why she chose Judaism is because she felt it spoke to her more. And I, I told her, listen, on the one hand, I hear that. 
on the other hand, like there's a certain sense of your decision, and I'm glad you chose Judaism, but like it should be based upon what's true and not just what feels right to you. And I think that synthesis of doing what we be, what what we know is true and know is the word of Hashem and Dvar Hashem and <coughs> combining that with an enjoyment of it, I think that's ultimately the formula w- which can take us to that level, take it to the next step. Rabbi Jesse Horn, thank you so much. Happy Shavuot to you. Thank you so much. You, you just flew into the United States to officiate at a wedding. Now we're flying back home. It's nighttime over Europe here on the El Al airplane. Somehow we're standing here <laughs> somewhere between heaven and earth. And that's exactly where we're going to be when we receive the Torah on Shavuos night in the old city of Jerusalem. All right, folks, that's the end of the show. It's so great to be with you here. I've been with you on the planes, trains, and automobiles, and, of course, the offices of the Jewish community of Hebron, and my beautiful studios also on the Mount of Olives overlooking the Temple Mount. So you are plugged into the story of Israel when you're plugged into the show and to our network, which is thelandofisrael.com. Write me an email, yishai at thelandofisrael.com. You can connect to me on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn and on YouTube, everything is at Yishai Fleischer. Most important is that you connect the story of the God of Israel, which is at the Torah, at Jerusalem, at Hebron, and at the land of Israel. I hope you are part of it. I know you are part of it. So keep strong, keep broadcasting, and stay tuned. More great stuff is on the way. Chag Sameach and Shalom. <laughs>